Before we start, I want to pray, and then we'll get into the next beatitude. Father, we thank you for all you've done so far this morning. We thank you for the worship team. We thank you for the songs we sing, and we thank you that we're able to praise and worship you in, in the manner that we do and the freedom that we have. We thank you that we get time to dig into your word, and we thank you that the people here are hungry and thirsty to hear what, you, with, what your word has to say, Father. We thank you that your spirit is the one leading this church, and we thank you that you're going to speak through me, not me speak, because if I do, I will screw this up miserably. We give this time to you, we give the rest of this day to you, and we just ask you to continue to speak to our hearts as, as you do always, to show us what it is you want us to do in our lives. That's this name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So over the past three weeks, we've looked at the Beatitudes. We started with being poor in spirit, ended up mourning, meeking, and now today we're going to talk about hungering and thirsting. We've seen how these Beatitudes are a roadmap for someone to enter the kingdom of heaven. We started with being poor in spirit and talked about how we were, we were in abject poverty and bankrupt before God. Because of that recognition, we mourn over our condition that we were in. We were lost and separated from God and have no way in ourselves or of ourselves to make ourselves righteous so that we can enter the kingdom. Last week, we saw the final step before coming to Christ, being meek. We recognized that we needed to humble ourselves and submit all that we had and all we are to God. This places us now in a perfect position to place our faith in Christ and believe on him. Today, we're going to look at the next steps and see the action and results of the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. So Jesus is going to continue now and pick up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, which says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Some of your translations may say, they may be filled. Either word is absolutely appropriate here. So before we start, let me see you raise of hands. Who here has ever been hungry or thirsty in their life? Not a surprise, okay? Many times we've been, you know, stuck at work and we're just doing things and we just don't recognize what time it is. And next thing you know, it's like, ooh, it's time to go. Didn't eat lunch, barely got out of here. And by the time you get home, you are just absolutely starving and you're, you're craving, craving some kind of food. Or we've been out in, in the, working in the yard for all day and, again, you're not thinking about anything and it's, you know, 100 degrees out, 100% humidity, and you just start realizing that you're actually thirsty and your body's responding to that. Both of these desires come from a recognition that we're lacking something. This is the imagery Jesus is going to use for this beatitude. We were bankrupt, grieving over our condition apart from God. Now we're humble enough to submit to his rule. We recognize our need and seek the one who can provide what's lacking. The word hunger just means, very simply, is to suffer want or to be needy. The word thirst, as much as I hate saying this, means to suffer thirst. It doesn't really tell us much. Okay. Both of these words, though, carry a connotation of something that we, that we seek with eager desire or we painfully feel the want of. Scripture typically pairs these words hunger and thirst together, and they've done it several times. Each time in context, it is, it's synonymous with, something, with a requirement for a deep desire or a need for something. There's a longing and desire for fulfillment in these words. Yet as we understand these words, nobody here can actually truly understand the conditions that most in the U.S., well, most that in the U.S., or most we can understand the familiarity with these words and the actual implications of how Jesus is talking about here. When we deal with Palestine, Israel, back then, we deal with places like India today that don't have food and water for days or they don't have clean water. 
This is the kind of hunger and thirst Jesus is talking about. We tend to miss a meal and we quote-unquote say we're hungry. That is not even remotely close to the, to the connotation spe- speaking of here. Right? We have ready access to food and water. We have a much better understanding of what true, and hunger, true hunger and thirst feel like when compared with somebody who is a millionaire or billionaire, but we can't even compare when we're talking about somebody who does not have food or water for days. That's what Jesus is talking about when he's speaking of food and hunger. That kind of painful desire, that painful want of something. So when we talk about hunger and thirst, we see that we hunger and thirst for something that is life-giving or life-sustaining. So in this context, when Jesus refers to hunger and thirst, the phrase refers to someone who is incapable of providing for themselves and has no choice but to go without food or water until someone provides it for him. Everybody get in the picture here. This is not just the way we refer to hunger and thirst. This is no capability on their own of getting it. This is the situation the person hungering and thirsting for when it comes to righteousness. They seek sustenance with an overwhelming eagerness, and once they know where to find it, nothing will stop them from getting it. There is a necessity to this insatiable drive as they will die without it. Jesus here is painting a very vivid picture of hunger and thirst, which many in his audience understood very, very, very well. And they were probably living through this. Although Jesus is using the physical aspects of hunger and thirsting, we know that he's truly talking about spiritual nourishment and sustenance, spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst. Now Jesus is going to tell us what we're actually hungering and thirsting for that he's painted, now that he's painted his picture. And he tells us that we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. What is righteousness? We hear this word thrown around. We think we understand it. The world sees this as something completely different, but this is how God sees righteousness. God sees righteousness as a condition acceptable to God or as one ought to be. As with the one in beggarly condition who is poor in spirit, righteousness is not something we can find or get on our own. Jesus here is drawing a sharp contrast between his teachings and those of the Jewish leaders. The Jews believed that if they followed every jot and tittle of the law, their self-righteous acts would get them into the kingdom. Jesus spent his entire time on this earth refuting that teaching. He taught from Scripture that it's only through Christ and his shed blood that anyone can enter the narrow gate and become citizens of God's kingdom. So Scripture's going to tell us a few things about righteousness, just to make sure this isn't me just saying this. First thing about righteousness, it's something rooted in God. It's part of his character and his nature. Matthew 6, verse 33, tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is something we both hunger and thirst for, and we focus our life on that, as is the one thing that can truly satisfy either desire. Righteousness is only found in Christ, and we're called to seek it so we may, be, we may enter this kingdom. The second thing associated with righteousness is it is a clear, defined, in Scripture aspect of God's character. It is part of his nature. Acts 13 tells us, the enemy of righteousness perverts the straight or true ways of the Lord. We see in Revelation 19.11 that God judges righteously. He judges by his nature, by that standard. And in numerous places, between James, Psalms, and in Hebrews, that God is unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He cannot go against his character or his nature. Therefore, we can count on God's righteousness in every aspect of our lives and trust he will do what is right on our behalf. The third thing about righteousness is it's associated with salvation. 
This verse, more accurately translated in the Greek, is those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness. It's a very specific righteousness. It's not just what we come up with. It is the righteousness of God. Jesus is telling us there's only one righteousness acceptable to God, and there's only one way to salvation. It is not the self-righteous acts and teaching of the Jewish leaders this can only be, and that's found in the law. This can only be found in Christ. Numerous places in the, in the book of Isaiah, we find that Isaiah further clarifies righteousness, starting in chapter 45 and 46 and other places. And he states that righteousness is synonymous with salvation. With this, we see that their hunger and thirst, for, thirst is for salvation, and this applies to all three aspects of salvation. First aspect of salvation is justification. We've all heard this before, but I'm going to rehash here just to make the point. Justification is something that is done for us and separates us from the penalty of sin. Jesus is going to tell us a little bit later in this chapter that our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees if we want to enter the kingdom. The only way that can happen is believing in Christ's finished work on the cross and accepting his gift of grace. Once we do this, we are justified in his sight because God imputes his righteousness to us in Christ. The second aspect of salvation is sanctification. This is something that the Holy Spirit does in us and separates us from the power of sin in our life. Romans 1, 16 and 17 tell us that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel and tells us that the just or the righteous shall live by faith. Paul and James both tell us to flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness as righteousness is demonstrated as we bear fruit in our lives to glorify God. James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way, not righteousness as in payment for sins and found right in God's sight, but actual righteousness expressing itself in right deeds. The righteousness associated with, and associated with sanctification is all about conduct that is pleasing to God. This is what we need to hunger and thirst for. And lastly, the third aspect of salvation is glorification, where we see that we are separated from the presence of sin in, our, in anything. And Galatians 5 tells us, For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. And that hope of righteousness is Christ. The last thing about righteousness is it's something we're going to be persecuted for. Jesus will definitely talk about this a few more times, but he, he addresses this also in the Beatitudes when we come down to verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we see we hunger and we thirst for something which will be persecuted for because the world does not like that kind of righteousness, no matter how much it tells you it does. So as we would die without physical food or water, we will also die without spiritual food or water. We are to seek righteousness as if our life depended on it, and as we come to the end of ourselves, to find it. Once we have it and we know where to get it, we need to have the same desire and humility to come before the provider the same way every single time. Martin Luther puts it this way, The command to you is not to crawl into a corner or into the desert, but to run out, and to offer your hands and feet and your whole body, and to wager everything you have and can do. What is required is a hunger and thirst for righteousness that can never be curbed or stopped or sated. That is the attitude we are supposed to have. So when God talks about hunger and, right, hunger and thirsting for righteousness, he makes a promise with this. And the promise is that we're going to be filled, or we're going to be satisfied. And this word just simply means to feed, to satisfy with food, to fatten, to fill up any of the above. You are eating to your heart's content until you can't eat anymore. God's righteousness satisfies our deepest desires and needs. 
We are not like the Jews who sought signs from Jesus to satisfy their curiosity. We do not hunger for the experiences God provides because they are fleeting. We do not seek experiences. We make, we make God a genie when we do that. And when he does give us what we desire, we look for bigger and better things next time. True satisfaction or filling will never leave us wanting anything else, and that is the kind of satisfaction that God provides. But did you notice something here? The promise is only that we will be satisfied or filled. He doesn't tell us with what. He tells us to seek righteousness and we'll be satisfied. Jesus makes this promise generic enough to satisfy the immediate need, yet specific enough to elicit trust from that individual that God will do as he promises and it will be sufficient. When we believe God can do what he says and we place our trust in him, he goes above and beyond. This makes the fulfillment of this promise that much more powerful. I say this because God fills us with three things when we come to know him. And the first is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one who we receive at the moment of justification as power to live our new life and as a down payment on our promised inheritance in Christ. The second thing we receive is Christ. He now dwells in us as well. But there's something special with Christ, and there are a couple things that he calls himself in particular that deal with hunger and thirst. And the first is out of the book of John, where he calls himself the bread of life from which no one will ever go hungry. He later, in the, uh, earlier in the book of John, he's called himself the living water from which you will never thirst. This is the kind of satisfaction and fulfillment that God provides. He gives us himself fills us from head to toe so we never have to go anywhere else to seek fulfillment or satisfaction. And here's where now the transition happens. Someone who's poor in spirit recognizes their spiritual bankruptcy. They mourn over their condition because they're outside the kingdom. They see what the king, who the king is and they see the people, what the people in the kingdom have. They know they can do nothing in themselves to change their situation and they mourn. This realization leads them to, to humble themselves and submit all they have to God. Their bankruptcy and inability to sustain themselves causes a hunger and thirst for the righteousness they cannot attain and they will eventually die without. This is the righteousness that can only be found in Christ. Once they accept this sustenance, God will fill them with the bread of life and living water which provides eternal sustenance in any circumstance. God imputes Christ's righteousness to our account and we continue to journey now as citizens of the kingdom of heaven in service to Christ the King. So if you haven't been watching the news, you're hearing a lot of stuff coming out of Kentucky right now. You are seeing a lot of young men and women hearing the gospel, recognizing their bankruptcy in spirit, mourning over that condition, humbling and submitting themselves to God, and desperately seeking the only, only righteousness that, they can justify, that can justify and satisfy their needs, which can only be found in Christ. We can call it revival. We can call it whatever you want to call it. It is evident the Holy Spirit is moving down there, and he is calling people to his kingdom. This is the route we all took when we came to Christ. And it's the only way we can enter the kingdom. We're now at the moment in the Beatitudes where a non-believer becomes a believer and he enters the kingdom. God justifies them immediately and fills them with his spirit and he calls them children and says, welcome home. Now what? How do I live as a citizen of the kingdom? This is what Jesus is going to cover in the rest of his Sermon on the Mount. But we're only going to look at one piece of that today. How do I live as one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness? I think John says it best in 1 John 2, 29. If I practice righteousness, I demonstrate I am born of Christ. 
that's a weighty statement right there. How do I practice righteousness? Am I practicing righteousness correctly? There's a whole lot of questions that go with that, but it's that simple. If I practice righteousness, I demonstrate I, born of, I am born of Christ. In a general, term, general sense, we hunger and thirst to know him more. We seek a deeper relationship with him. We seek to live the righteous life he has given to us. We don't do these things to maintain our righteousness because we can't lose it. Justification is already taken care of. We do these things out of love for our Father. We seek to live a life more like Christ out of the righteousness he has imputed to us to his glory. John Stott says, Our hunger is satisfied only to break out again. Even the promise of Jesus that whoever drinks of the water he gives will never thirst is fulfilled only if we keep drinking. Like all the characteristics in the Beatitude, hunger and thirst are perpetual characteristics of the disciple of Christ, as perpetual as poverty of spirit, meekness, and mourning. Not until we reach heaven will we hunger no more, neither thirst no more. For only then will Christ our shepherd lead us to springs of living water. When we're, as every, every example we ever give for living a life to be more Christ-like, we have to look at Jesus as the example. And we see all throughout Scripture Jesus' life demonstrated a hunger and thirst to know father's, his Father's will and to do it no matter the cost. Use the Garden of Gethsemane as an example, but there's many others. He loved his Father so much that his only desire was to do his Father's righteous will and to glorify him at every step. Jesus lived a life that, will always be filled, that was always filled and satisfied as God promised. Because of this, Jesus was always happy and content. He was blessed. He was living a blessed life, pleasing to God, even to the point of death on the cross. So if you notice, before I said God fills us with three things, but I only mentioned two. Now we're going to cover the third one because this is, a, this is where we are. This is for those of us who are in the citizens of the kingdom, where we are in Christ right now. He is, we are justified believers. And we go to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Prior to this verse, Christ is telling us that he died for the sin of all and rose again. Because of this, if we are reconciled to God by believing in him and putting our faith in him, we are a new creation and ambassadors for Christ. Yet verse 21 says, says this as it tells us something very important about who we actually are in Christ right now. And it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the third thing God fills us with. His righteousness. Paul is telling us that believers, citizens of God's kingdom, are God's righteousness in Christ. We no longer hunger and thirst for righteousness in the same manner as someone who is bankrupt in spirit, as someone who mourns their lost condition, and as someone who humbles themselves and submits to God. They need to become a new creation and receive God's righteousness. But God has already done that and filled us with his righteousness. For a believer... We hunger and thirst to understand the riches we have in Christ and to live from that position. We desire to know who we are as sons and daughters of the King. We desire a deeper relationship with him where there's no longer a focus on self. There is no self-righteousness or self-ambition as he increases and we decrease. We continually hunger and thirst for him to renew our mind and make us more in practice what we are in position. We are free from the penalty of sin and have God's righteousness imputed to us, yet we are not free from the flesh and the power of sin to influence our lives. 
We hunger and thirst for the Holy Spirit to produce fruit in our lives and to show Christ to this fallen world through us. Christ imputed his righteousness to us, and we hunger and thirst to be a living testimony of his righteousness to this world for his glory. Now we come back to what we discussed last week with kingdoms in conflict. And this is the point where Satan now opposes us. His system is designed to focus on hunger and thirst on the things of the world instead of the things of God. He essentially rewrites the first commandment and says, you shall hunger and thirst for many other things that are gods in your life, and you shall place them above the most high God. He doesn't care what we have or how we get it, as long as our desires are focused on anything but God. His system is designed to leave us always hungering and thirsting for more, always seeking for something just beyond our reach, which leaves us frustrated and angry and irritable. We see very briefly in the parable of the prodigal son, the younger son desired the things of the world. It led him away from God. But at some point, God reached back down to him, and he recognized his not only physical hunger and thirst, but his spiritual hunger and thirst, and he returned home. He returned home to his father, who is the only one that can quench that satisfaction and fill him. That's the desire of God for mankind. Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones says, To hunger and thirst after righteousness is to desire to be free from self in all of its horrible manifestations in all of its forms. We were considered the man who is meek. We saw that really mean, what that really means is that he is free from self in its every shape and form. Self-concern, self-pride, boasting, self-protection, sensitiveness, always imagining people are against him and a desire to protect self and glorify self. This is what leads to quarrels between individuals. This is what leads to quarrels between nations. It's a self-assertion. But the man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness is a man who longs to be free from all of that. He wants to be emancipated from self-concern in every shape and form, and he turns to Christ, who gives him ultimate peace, freedom, and satisfaction. Satan's system is in direct opposition of the kingdom of God. It's all about me and what makes me happy, and it leaves me wanting and frustrated. God's system is all about him, bringing him glory and being fully satisfied in him. So as the worship team comes back up, I want, to leave, I want to close with Revelation 7, verses 15 to 17. This passage speaks of believers who are martyred during the Great Tribulation as an encouragement, and an encouragement to them and us as well. The first part of this chapter, you see two different groups of witnesses. The first part is the 144,000 from each, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, and these are the ones talking about those who are martyred during the Great Tribulation. And it says, therefore, uh, this is John speaking to one of the elders as he's having, having his, uh, his vision. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. They shall thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He is our shelter. He satisfies our hunger. He quenches our thirst. He protects us. He guides us, and he takes away our fears as the good shepherd should. He's the only one who can satisfy our every need, and we will glorify him for it throughout all eternity. So, Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this message. We thank you for your word. We thank you always that we do not hunger for the things of this world. We hunger for you. 
We thank you that it is Jesus that spoke this word, so there is no confusion in anybody's mind about where it is in Scripture. It is God's word, it is his son's word, and it is instrumental and key in entering the citizen, being a citizen of the kingdom. We thank you that your spirit reminds us of this daily, that we do not hunger for the, the things the flesh desires. We hunger and thirst for the thing God desires. And the thing God desires is a renewed mind and to be more and more like him and to live that way all to his glory. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this message. We thank you for this last song as we worship here, Father. And just continue to work in people's hearts as, as, as you always do to draw them to you, draw others to you through us, and just let us glorify you in all that we do. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. So I want to leave you with the challenge as again. Do I live as one who has Christ's righteousness imputed to me? Do I live as the world does, or do I live as one who follows the Spirit to flow through me? Do I live humbly and gently with a thirst to know him more and more? These are just a few reflection questions that get to the heart of the matter. Christ imputed his righteousness to me so that I can be an ambassador for his kingdom in this fallen world. I'm called to be someone who lives in stark contrast to the prideful, self-centered, frustrating kingdom of Satan. I'm called to be one who is humble and merciful, someone who is a peacemaker, someone who is salt and light. My desire is to hunger and thirst for the Holy Spirit to renew my mind so I live the fulfilled, righteous life imputed to me in Christ. So I leave you with this question to ponder. Am I living a frustrated life like those in Satan's kingdom? as someone who is trying to satisfy myself or constantly meeting the expectations of the world? Or am I living a fulfilled life as a citizen of God's kingdom, satisfied in him? Thanks, everybody, and have a great week.